Hi, uh, welcome to episode uh, six of the Homeric World um, season of the BGS Classics podcast. Um, it's the second one on Homer's Odyssey. Um, it's uh, 2.6 because the first four were on Mycenaean World. Um, and this one is on themes in the Odyssey. Um, we've basically got uh, six themes. You can see them on the topic overview uh, at the beginning of chapter 2.6 in your textbook. Um, they are Xenia or Xenia, Deceit and Trickery. Uh, that was the second one. Third one is Civilization and Barbarism. Fourth one, Revenge and Justice. Fifth one is something called Nostos. We'll come back to Nostos and what it is in a moment. And then the last one, sixth one, is the role of fate. We're going to take it in turns uh, to talk you through those and we'll give you some key examples that you can then build into any um, exam um, answers or essays um, and also to just help you understand how they work um, in uh, you know, actually in the, the story themselves. Um, I've spoken for nearly a minute without introducing my co-podcaster, Mr. Watkins, but uh, here it is. Here he is now. Hello. Um, it's very nice to be your guest on this show, Mr. Keane, and I'm going to talk about the Greek culture of guest um, guest friendship. So uh, the ancient Greeks didn't have uh, food banks, they didn't have sort of police uh, or hotels in the way that we think of them. So the best way to look after a stranger or for a stranger to be considered safe um, was that we have a culture of respecting guests. Um, and this is all protected by Zeus. Zeus Xenia is the, the god of Zeus, uh, the god of uh, friendship of guests, which shows how important it was for the ancient Greeks. And what you'll be asked in the examination is to compare the use of Xenia. So you're going to have to be able to think about which characters offer good Xenia are good hosts, are good guests, according to the Greek rules. Which characters offer poor Xenia uh, are not good hosts or good guests even. And then actually there are some grey areas where a character perhaps offers good uh, good hosting and then, then offers poor hosting. Or maybe they don't mean to be bad hosts, they just are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rattle through characters, how whether they're good or bad and why. So let's start with the really obvious example people like to look at, and that's Polyphemus, the Cyclops we looked at in book nine. Um, Odysseus and his men arrive in his cave. They eat his cheese. Um, it would be expected of Polyphemus, as these guys are washed you know, on their shore looking for support, to to allow them to eat some of his cheese, to look after them, to offer them a bath. Um, uh, before he asks them um, who they are uh, and and where they come from. Uh, instead, he does ask them who they are and where they come from, and he, in fact, eats two of them. Bad Xenia. Um, next, we could talk about Aeolus, um, who is the this man who looks after the winds. Initially, when the men arrive at his house, he feeds them for a month. Um, he clearly looks after them. He does ask um, questions. Um, he asks them questions about where they're from and whatnot. Uh, but he does offer gifts. You know, he gives them the bag of winds. Good, Xenia. However, when the men then return back at his island with the bag of wind opened, he says, look, the gods got involved now. Um, unfortunately, uh, I'm not going to help you out. So you, this could be argued as being poor, Xenia, or good piety. Uh, we could look at um, Circe. Uh, definitely bad Xenia to begin with, as she uh, turns her guests into pigs. However, once she's been shown how powerful Odysseus is by taking the moly and uh, and 
and she welcomes the house. She then gives the men food and Odysseus food and she bathes and looks after them. She does ask some questions. She offers them gifts at the end and advice how to get onto the underworld and looks after them for a year. So again, she starts poorly and then finishes well. Um, Penelope is an incredibly, incredibly gracious host um, to her own to her own sort of loss to the suitors. Um, other examples are you could then think perhaps about the actual guests themselves. So are the suitors? You know, the suitors are obviously being poor guests, outstaying their welcome and eating all the food. But when actually um, the Odysseus in disguise as the beggar. They're, they then become in the role of uh, hosts and they should be welcoming this beggar. But of course, they are themselves very poor hosts. Uh, but you know, other characters could crop up in the story and you, you're asked to discuss to what extent you think they are good or bad guests, hosts, and make sure you apply those rules. Uh, the next one we need to look at is deceit and trickery. Deceit and trickery, indeed. Um, thank you, Mr. Watkins. Um, the Odyssey itself uh, is. You know, it's not a coincidence that it's got the first uh, few letters of the word are the same as Odysseus, um, because it is named after him. It means the story of Odysseus. And Odysseus is set out from right at the beginning of book one as being the tricking, the, the tricksy, the kind of uh, the, the hero of trickery, of, of deceit. That's what he's good at. He pops up in lots of other stories being good at tricking people into doing things. He tricks the Trojans into letting the, the wooden horse into their, their city. He actually um, tricks a guy called Philictetes into sort of, uh, you know, giving him um, what he needs when he has a bow that he needs to fire an arrow from to win the Trojan War. All sorts of tricks that um, Odysseus does. In the books that you read, well, the most obvious is that he tricks everybody into thinking that he's an old man when he's uh, in the, uh, the, the house. Um, of course, he gets help from Athena, but the Greeks wouldn't have had a problem with that because if you get help from the gods, it just shows you're an impressive hero. He tricks Polyphemus in, in book nine into thinking he's called nobody. And then he tricks Polyphemus into letting them out by escaping under the sheep. Um, Penelope um, is, is a tricker as well. She manages to trick the suitors. There's a story that um, for years and years she says, you know, when the suitors are saying to her, it's time to get married now, Odysseus is dead. She says, well, I will, but only when I finish this cat tapestry that I'm making. Um, and then at night, she creeps into her room and unpicks part of it. Um, when Odysseus, at the very, very end um, of the book, uh, of the Odyssey, right after the bit that you read, um, when Odysseus um, says to her, look, it really is me. It's, it's Odysseus. I'm home. She says, um... Uh, are you sure? And she, she's sort of uh, worried about trickery and deceit. Um, and he then says to her, well, tell you what, Penelope, um, what, just while you're deciding, why don't you get the old bed um, from your room down and put it in the, um, the front room and I'll sleep on the bed there. And she says, ah, you know that you can't do that because... Um, you know, it, it's actually built into a tree that's uh, sort of um, part of the house. And so, you know, she was sort of trying to kind of uh, to trick him um, into, um, you know, in, into kind of, you know, owning up he's not Odysseus 
um, because she's still not quite sure. So lots and lots of trickery and deceit going on. It's mainly Odysseus doing the trickery and deceit. Um, there is a bit of Penelope that they are kind of quite well suited to each other. They're both quite good at trickery and uh, and cunning. Um, but if you're going to talk about deceit and trickery, the, the key one is um, Odysseus. The other thing to mention, it is mentioned in a textbook, but um, of course the whole of book nine and ten could be a trick because it's Odysseus telling the story of the Cyclops, Odysseus telling the story of the Lystragonians and Circe and Aeolus. It might be that he's just made it up. Um, and the reason that Homer has him tell that story uh, is because we then have to kind of wonder about it. If you ever read any other uh, novels in which you get the, the idea of the unreliable narrator, uh, that partly goes back to this Homeric idea of, uh, of Odysseus as uh, telling that story. So that's that's deceit and trickery. It's a really important um, thing to bring out. Um, and the next one we're going to look at is civilization and barbarism, Mr. Watkins. So obviously this is a, a theme you're familiar with from your study of myth and religion, particularly in the um, on the module on uh, symbols of power. Um, but uh, civilization and barbarism. If there are questions in the exam about comparing civilization and barbarism, absolutely you can bring in what we discussed in Xenia a minute or two ago. But um, Think of what examples do we have of civilization, the, the Greek civilization. So we have Ithaca, the, the land of Odysseus, which has clear structure and command order. It has a king who's in charge. It has people underneath that. It has specific jobs for specific people. There are slaves who have to look after swine, cattle, goats. There is a palace, which is the center of power. And these are the symbols of uh, a civilized society. Um, you could also then talk about the Phaeacians uh, under King Alcinous, that sort of that paradigm of Xenia, who, who, who hosts Odysseus so well. And they have a clearly defined societal order with a king on top um, and moral examples in his wife, Arete, and his daughter, Nausicaa, um, and slaves underneath who have jobs that they do. Now, the examples of, of barbarism, savagery, uh, are with our two cannibalistic cultures, and that is the Cyclopes and the Lystragonians. So clearly, eating humans, they both eat some of Odysseus's crew, is barbaric. It is con in contrast to a civilised world. Um, but it's a little bit more complex than that. You know, the examiner wants you to be aware of sort of shades. So absolutely, the Lystragonians' behaviour is barbaric. They eat people. But when we arrive on their island, before we realise they're monstrous cannibals or giants, what we first of all we see uh, is a, is a, a wagon, uh, a well-worn track suggesting transport, civilization. We see um, uh, we see Antiphates' daughter fetching water from a well. They have infrastructure in place. They even have a high ceilinged assembly hall. Now the high ceilings might be foreboding of something to come, but having a meeting place clearly indicative of a civilised society. Of course, when uh, they then start spearing men like fish and eating them, they become barbaric. Again, with, the, um, with Polyphemus, the Cyclops, uh, he lives in a cave. Uh, the Cyclopes do not build ships um, and they do not grow crops. So they are clearly barbaric. And of course, he eats men. But there are little moments of tenderness where an, an order in uh, Polyphemus's life where he uh, milks the sheep and he uh, puts each baby um, uh, lamb with, with, with its you mother. So do be aware of those shades of grey 
of barbarism and civilization. Uh, the next theme for you to discuss is, of course, revenge and justice. And it links in really nicely to what you've just been talking about, Mr. Watkins, because you said shades of grey when it comes to barbarism. Um, there is one uh, event that happens uh, in the books of the Odyssey you read that causes a lot of people who read it, you know, real kind of problems in terms of how you deal with it. And that is what happens uh, to what are called the maids at the end. Now, if that happened in a modern day novel, um, the stringing up um, of some women, you know, who really haven't done anything more than sort of, you know, reacting to these terrible suitors and sort of trying to have a bit of fun. Um, they are then hanged by the neck until their feet stop twitching. Um, you might think of it as barbarism, but the ancient Greeks think of it, I think, a lot more as this idea of justice, as an idea of revenge. They've been disloyal to Odysseus, and so therefore they must be punished. Um, I suspect the Greeks might have actually felt a little bit of a shade of grey anyway, um, and they might have felt that what Odysseus did was over the top, and that that's a complex character. But nonetheless, there is an element of, well, it is justice. I'm going to mention one other thing when it comes to uh, justice and revenge in the Odyssey, um, and that is uh, Polyphemus. Um, at the end of Book Nine, Odysseus has done terrible things to him. Um, yes, you can argue, of course, that Odysseus did what he uh, had to to get his men out of there when, when the Cyclops started eating them. But to basically ruin his life as part of that and then shout at him these insults, um, there's an element of, well, he needs to get revenge. And, of course, the revenge he gets is a pretty extreme revenge because his father Poseidon, Polyphemus' his father Poseidon, um, basically makes Odysseus' life pretty miserable and he only just gets home uh, in, in one piece, really, to, to Ithaca. So there is a real sense going right the way through the, uh, the Odyssey of revenge and justice. The Greeks even had um, a goddess of revenge, Nemesis. Um, and interestingly, the, the Romans uh, took on this idea of uh, the, the goddess of revenge, Nemesis, um, and they used to have a shrine to Nemesis in their amphitheatres. Um, but but that's going off uh, onto a different topic, which I don't want to get uh, sidetracked onto. Um, clearly, the ancient Greek and Roman world had had a really strong idea of the importance of revenge and justice. If you're interested in that, by the way, follow the story of Agamemnon um, and look at some of the um, tragedies and the stories of what happened to Agamemnon and then what happened to the people who avenge his death um, later on. Uh, the Greeks loved that idea. And that leads us on next to uh, the idea of uh, of nostos. Now, nostos is a Greek word. Mr. Watkins is going to talk you through what it means and how it relates to the books of the Odyssey that you read. Great. This is a nice short one um, because nostos is, just means homecoming or more specifically the desire to return to your homeland. Um, uh, in fact, we have the word nostalgia in English, which is a pain felt from missing home. So it's an idea that we're familiar with. And it's the overarching theme. It's the mission of Odysseus is he's trying to get home. Him and his men uh, have been fighting in Troy for 10 years. <coughs> and they've been travelling home. Odysseus has been travelling home for another 10 years. And this Odyssey is his 10-year journey home. Um, but um, we can therefore, if we see his overall movement, his overall desire as one to get home, um, we can then see anything that gets in the way as being um, as being an impediment to that nostos. So the lotus eaters seem quite a harmless, harmless bunch. 
um, mindlessly drifting around, uh, eating their lotus and forgetting anything else, losing all their desire to move on. But actually, the risk there is in eating the lotus, you lose your desire to go home. Um, uh, similarly, when um, Odysseus and his men get so close, they get so close to Ithaca when they oh, when they have the bag of winds, that tantalising moment when they can see Ithaca is so painful because Nostos is this such an overarching theme of the Odyssey. Um, they can see home and then all of a sudden the winds are open and they are sent back all the way they came from. Um, and, and then, but there are some question marks. If, if we define Odysseus's main motive as Nostos, then the fact that he then spends a year on Circe's island, enjoying her hospitality, enjoying her company, um, then actually is his is his motive, is his nostos so clear and precise? Moreover, when he goes to Calypso's island, that's where we first meet him, he, um, he's been there for seven years enjoying the company of Calypso. So um, we can ask questions about the motives of our hero. Yes, nostos is probably the main theme of the overall poem, but there is, is Odysseus's intent always clear and true. <coughs> great yeah thanks i'm going to now talk through the last of those six uh themes from the textbook um and that is fate now fate's one that we find uh we, we struggle sometimes uh with as uh, sort of modern readers because um we don't think of everything as being destined to happen in a particular way um, but the Greeks had a real sense that even though you did have free will, you, you could kind of control things that happened in your life. There was a sense that um, some events in your life were, were arranged by the gods. Um, and that's how they explained away the thought that, you know, all sorts of things suddenly come along that you don't expect. And there's nothing you can do about them. Um, the, the crisis in which we're uh, doing this podcast um in spring 2020, the coronavirus is a really good example. People thought that their life was going to go a particular way and all of a sudden something comes along and no one has control over it and you just have to react to it. Um, and the Greeks were very um, aware of that. Um, Odysseus's fate, it, it's not fair for Odysseus to have to go through what he goes through. And yet it's just what the gods have done. Why they've done that? Well, you can't question the gods like that. So therefore, there are lots of things. Um, it's going to take him 10 years to get home. That's part of his fate. Um, he's going to suffer. He's going to basically have to borrow a boat from the Phaeacians to get home. He's going to have all his men die. He's going to be the only one left um, by the end. And he's going to have to struggle even when he gets home uh, to really get home and um, sort of uh, get back together with his wife. So lots of those things are about fate. But it's really odd because at times things are described as being Odysseus's fault. And philosophically, you've got to stop and go, um, how does that work? So if he's, um, if he's responsible for it, but he couldn't help it, how does that fit? And it's a philosophical problem. Homer doesn't resolve that. He's not a philosopher, but it is this dilemma, this kind of odd odd kind of ending you know he's you know it's his fault because they ate the secret sacred cattle and yet he had to suffer anyway because you decided it um some of it's just not just what happens but how it happens um and so it's worth kind of picking apart those ideas um you know the, the curse of polyphemus kind of sort of expresses what odysseus's fate is um other times things like um book 10 the guy called elpenor who falls off the roof and dies um is that is that 
Odysseus's fault? Is it fate that that was going to happen? Little things, big things, um, a lot of them are destined to happen, are fated to happen. There's nothing anyone can do to uh, to change that. Um, does it kind of ruin the um, the story of the Odyssey? Does it spoil the kind of the suspense? Well, I suppose in a sense it does, but the Greeks were used to this idea that some things were just fated and the way things happened and the description of them and, the, and kind of the, the details were what's interesting. So lots to say about that, lots of themes, um, but hopefully we've talked you through some good examples. We've got a couple more chapters, um, a couple more episodes of this podcast to go. We've got the character of Odysseus and we've got other characters um, still left to go um, on this. So I hope you come back to listen to those. But I hope you've enjoyed listening to me and Mr. Watkins um, talking about uh, themes in the Odyssey. And that's the end of this episode.